Dear Father, please be with us just now. Enlighten our minds in a book that many have called the darkest book in the Bible. Again, our search is always to see you the light. Amen. Well, this is a real challenge because Judges and Ruth, you know, if you were just to make a, a movie, just exactly as the stories are described here, it, it would be uh, a challenge to put this anything lower than R-rated. Okay, I'll just give you a few examples here. It starts out, Judges 1, we learn about this guy, I won't try to pronounce his name, some leader or king, and they found him there and fought him. He ran away, but they chased him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. He said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, have picked up scraps under my table. God has now done to me what I did to them. Again, did God really do that? But anyway, that's how he interpreted it. And he was taken to Jerusalem where he died. Lots of um, brutal killings, dismemberments, uh, all the way through the book of Judges, which ends with a horrible story, the Levite and the concubine. And we'll come to this story, but this man took his concubine's body, cut it into 12 pieces, and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it's, a, it's just an awful story. But we've got to ask, and what we will is, why this story is in the Bible, and uh, what benefit is there for us in all of this? Okay, so the book opens with cut off thumbs and toes and ends with a body being cut into 12 pieces. <clears throat> How do we get there? We read this verse last time, but it's very important for understanding the context of Judges. The Lord's servant Joshua, son of Nun, died at the age of 110, and that whole generation also died, and the next generation forgot the Lord and what he had done for Israel. Remember their reassuring words to Joshua? Um, you know, we would never do that. We'll follow the Lord. And uh, right away, they forgot. And so we have these judges or leaders. And this uh, passage very well outlines the whole book of Judges and uh, what happened in Judges 2. Whenever the Lord gave Israel a leader, the Lord would help that leader and would save the people from their enemies as long as that leader lived. The Lord would have mercy on them because they groaned under their suffering and oppression. But when the leader died, the people would return to the old ways and behave worse than the previous generation. They would serve and worship other gods and stubbornly continue their own evil ways. Then the Lord would become angry. And remember the very important context of God's anger, wrath. What's the meaning of that? The Lord would become angry with Israel and say, This nation has broken the covenant that I commanded their ancestors to keep because they've not obeyed me. I will no longer drive out any of the nations that were still in the land when Joshua died. His actions in his anger is not to help, not to protect, because they don't want him to. I will use them to find out whether or not these Israelites will follow my ways, as their ancestors did. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain in the land. He did not give Joshua victory over them, nor did he drive them out soon after Joshua's death. And so we have this um, cycle recurring again. There's a judge, there's peace in the land for a while, they conquer their enemies, and then they forget. There's panic, chaos, they're slaves, and then they, God sends another leader again and again. And in Judges 3, And so the people of Israel settled down among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And for those of you here last week, we went through in detail the practices of these people. And how many times God said, that would be fatal if you do that. And it really was. They intermarried with them and worshipped their gods. 
the people of Israel sinned against the Lord again. Because of this, the Lord made King Eglon of Moab stronger than Israel. Again, we have to interpret this. Did God see his people going the wrong way? And so he sought out a heathen king who was bad and he lifted him up. This is the way it's worded. Or again, does God remove his protection? He's not helping. And then the people suffer consequences. Eglon joined the Ammonites and the Amalekites. They defeated Israel and captured Jericho, the city of palm trees. The Israelites were subject to Eglon for 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he sent someone to free them. This was Ehud, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent Ehud to King Eglon of Moab with gifts for him. Ehud had made himself a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long. Why would he need such a long sword? He had it fastened on his right side under his clothes. Then he took the gifts to Eglon, who was a very fat man. And with his left hand, Ehud took the sword from his right side and plunged it into the king's belly. The whole sword went in, handle and all, and the fat covered it up. Ehud did not pull it out of the king's belly and it stuck out between his legs. I'm just giving you a flavor for the book here. And uh, this is, uh, again, it is a pretty exciting book to read because of all of the fighting and and stuff that goes on. Just continuing on, again, to give you a sense of what goes on in Judges. There's a commander named Sisera, and God's helping the Israelites, so he's running for his life. (coughs) And he headed for the tent of Jael, wife of Heber. Jael stepped out to meet Sisera and said, Come in, sir, Stay stay here with me. Don't be afraid. So he went with her into the tent. She covered him with a blanket. He said to her, please, a little water, I'm thirsty. She opened a bottle of milk, gave him a drink, and then covered him up again. He then said, stand at the tent flap. If anyone comes by and asks you, is there anyone here? Tell him, no, not a soul. Then while he was fast asleep from exhaustion, Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and hammer, tiptoed toward him and drove the tent peg through his temple and all the way into the ground. He convulsed. I believe the first seizure in the Bible that's recorded and uh, died. Um, It is interesting. We've talked about uh, the temporal lobe being the most epileptic part of the brain, drove it through the temple and he had a seizure and died. Are you getting a sense here of the brutality uh, in this book? But then here's, here's a challenge for us. Here's the judge at this time, Deborah. And after this event, tent peg through the temple, we have the song of Deborah which concludes, So may all your enemies die like that, O Lord, but may your friends shine like the rising sun. And there was peace in the land for 40 years. And uh, this is a challenge, I think. We're we're really going to get to the subject of inspiration uh, very soon. Remember, we're doing this Bible study chronologically. So 1 Samuel, we'll talk about Saul. 2 Samuel, we'll talk about David. We'll get right into the Psalms. And uh, how do we understand this? Because this is recorded... Here, the song of Deborah. Um, This is how many can read the Bible and say, we wish this on our enemies. May your enemies die like that, God, and use the Bible to justify that kind of attitude uh, toward enemies. Well, I'll just give you a a taste of this in the Psalms. Is this uh, this an appropriate way to view our enemies? Break the teeth of these fierce lions, O God. May they disappear like water draining away. May they be crushed like weeds on a path. May they be like snails that dissolve into slime. May they be like a baby born dead that never sees the light. Before they know it, they are cut down like weeds. In his fierce anger, God will blow them away while they are still living. The righteous will be glad when they see sinners punished. They will wade through the blood of the wicked." 
And we'll have to go through a number of these psalms. Certainly there are many of them, believe me. Um, But again, it has to do with our view of inspiration. Because we find words like this in the Bible, again, many could say it's completely justified under a certain circumstance to view our enemies in this way. Now, I won't go into this now, but we could counter with verse after verse after verse that God's heart aches after his wicked children as they die. This would not seem to reflect God's attitude. How do we reconcile this? Well, that's uh, in a couple of weeks. One more very difficult one. Happy are those who pay you back for what you've done to us, who take your babies and smash them against a rock. So the book of Psalms will be a challenge for us. But I believe there are some answers uh, that really make God look very good through all of this. So let's talk about a few very prominent judges, Gideon and Samson and Jephthah. I think God is the only one that looks good in the book of Judges. And let me explain why. Let's read the story of Gideon. Once again, the people of Israel sinned against the Lord. So this same cycle going on. So he led the people of Midian, again, let the people of Midian rule them for seven years. The Midianites were stronger than Israel and the people of Israel hid from them in caves and other safe places in the hills. Then the Lord's angel came to the village of Ophrah. Now, we talked about the Lord's angel earlier, for those of you here, and said, this is God himself. The Lord's angel came to the village of Ophrah and sat under the oak tree that belonged to Joash. His son Gideon was threshing some wheat secretly in a wine press so that the Midianites would not see him. The Lord's angel appeared to him there and said, The Lord is with you, brave and mighty man. Gideon said to him, If I may ask, sir, why has all this happened to us if the Lord is with us? What happened to all the wonderful things that our father told us the Lord used to do, how he brought them out of Egypt? The Lord has abandoned us and left us to the mercy of the Midianites. I think this is really significant because don't we hear often, Where was God? Where is God? And uh, we wonder, where was God? But here Gideon is asking, where's God? But we standing back, we reading this whole book and the times, we can see God was there trying to intervene in every possible way, but he was continually being shut out. But it's interesting, God doesn't now say, now Gideon, look, I have been doing all these things, you're just not aware of them. It's you people that have shut me out. Okay, it's kind of a, a little bit of a slap in the face, it seems like, to Gideon. God, where have you been? Look at us. Here he is hiding somewhere to thresh wheat. But God just goes on. Then the Lord ordered him, go with all your great strength and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I myself am sending you. Gideon replied, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh and I am the least important member of my family. The Lord answered, you can do it because I will help you. You will crush the Midianites as easily as if they were only one man. And Gideon replied, If you are pleased with me, give me some proof that you really are the Lord. Please do not leave until I bring you an offering of food. Again, God comes to you and gives you a mission to do something. And uh, would you reply, Hey, give me some proof. Well, Gideon did. Now, how do you think, uh, let's pretend we don't know the rest of the story, But um, how would we imagine God replies to this? First of all, Gideon insulted him a little bit. You haven't been doing anything, God, and I can't figure out why. And then he demands proof. And God said, I will stay until you come back. And do any of you know what did Gideon do? 
Yeah, he went and he cooked a calf. Has anyone here cooked a calf or a goat? How long do you think it takes to cook a goat? I don't know. It probably takes quite a while to cook a goat. And uh, we imagine, what did God do? Did he just uh, sit there on the rock for a while? Did he go for a walk, uh, go back up to heaven and wait for the goat to you know, be finished? I mean, I like to imagine here the patience of God just hanging out while Gideon cooks a goat so that he can have his proof. So Gideon went into his house and cooked a young goat and used a bushel of flour to make bread without any yeast. This took a while. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them to the Lord's angel under the oak tree and gave them to him. The angel told him, put the meat and the bread on this rock and pour the broth over them. Gideon did so. Then the Lord's angel reached out and touched the meat and the bread with the end of his stick he was holding. Fire came out of the rock and burned up the meat and the bread. Gideon had his proof. Then the angel disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. So Gideon has his proof, right? Now he's ready to go. And of course, you know the story. Then Gideon said to God, You say that you've decided to use me to rescue Israel. Well, I'm putting some wool on the ground where we thresh the wheat. If in the morning... There is dew only on the wool, but not on the ground. Then I will know that you are going to use me to rescue Israel. How far can Gideon push God? It's amazing. How many chances does God give us? Well, that's exactly what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the wool and wrung enough dew out of it to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me make one more test with the wool. This time, let the wool be dry and the ground be wet. And I just imagine here Gideon got to thinking about it and imagined, you know what, wouldn't the dew naturally get soaked up in the wool and it would dry off in the ground first? And, uh, you know, what an idiot. I should have asked for it the other way around. That's probably the way it would happen anyway. And so he does ask for it the other way around. And, of course, we know that night God did that very thing. And the next morning the wool was dry, but the ground was wet with dew. Now, here's what is most amazing. When you read Hebrews 11, you know what's in Hebrews 11? Men and women of great faith, Abraham, Moses, and the list goes on. And the list includes Gideon as a man of great faith, which we just read the story. Give me some proof. Give me more evidence. Give me more evidence. I'm not sure, God. And then here he is in the faith chapter, uh, which uh, I think... uh, makes me glad that God is in charge of the judgment and not a committee of some of us. Anyway, but then we know what happened. While Gideon's men were blowing their trumpets, the Lord made the enemy troops attack each other with their swords. And again, we see God here saying, boy, if I can just get a little bit of trust, I'll take care of it. And we have this miraculous victory with just a handful of people that defeat an entire army because God did it. Well, Gideon was no saint, and we don't have time to go through uh, some of the, uh, the escapades of Gideon, but he had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech, and Abimelech was, uh, was a real problem. After Gideon's death, the people of Israel were unfaithful to God again and worshipped the Baals. They made Baal of the covenant their God and no longer served the Lord their God, who had saved them from all their enemies around Again, it's just over and over and over the same thing. And then what happened? Gideon's son Abimelech 
um, said to the men of Shechem, um, the men of Shechem gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal of the covenant. And with this money, he hired a bunch of worthless scoundrels to join him. He went to his father's house at Oprah and there on top of a single stone, he killed his 70 brothers, Gideon's sons. So we have the same cycle of violence. And it goes on and on. And finally, we have this uh, very uh, revealing passage. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. Not only this, but they abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. What did he do? And he handed them over. This relationship, which is so redundant in the Bible. In his anger, he didn't protect it. Protect, protect them. He handed them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites who began to oppress them that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites. The Israelites were in great distress. Finally, they cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. Now notice, the Lord replied, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites? When they oppressed you, you cried out to me and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods, so I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. Now, when God says something like this, don't we say, God said it, I believe it, that's all there is to it. God said, I will not rescue you anymore. But notice what happens. But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, We have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. And notice, and God was grieved by their misery. And did he help them? Again and again, a thousand times more. We read he helped them again, helped them again. It's this cycle again. But yet God just said, I am not going to rescue you anymore. Yet he rescued them many times more. So again, I think just like a parent who will sometimes say something over the top, I mean, to get your child's attention, God is speaking with hard words here, but notice the response. They put away their foreign gods. They told God, do to us whatever you need to do. And they they came back to him. It worked for a short time. Okay, another difficult story, the story of Jephthah. Jephthah, a brave soldier from Gilead, was the son of a prostitute. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh. If you deliver the Ammonites into my grasp, the first thing to come out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from fighting the Ammonites shall belong to Yahweh, and I shall sacrifice it as a burnt offering. You know, thinking it would be a, a chicken or, or something like that that would, that would run out of the house. Jephthah crossed into Ammonite territory to attack them, and Yahweh delivered them into his grasp. It was a very severe defeat, and the Ammonites were humbled by the Israelites. As Jephthah returned to his house at Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was his only child. Apart from her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and exclaimed, Oh, my daughter, what misery you have brought upon me. You have joined those who bring misery into my life. I have made a promise before Yahweh, which I cannot retract. And she replied, Father, you've made a promise to Yahweh. Treat me as the promise that you have made requires, since Yahweh has granted you vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She then said to her father, Grant me this. 
Let me be free for two months. I shall go and wander in the mountains and with my companions bewail my virginity. He replied, go and let her go away for two months. So she went away with her companions and bewailed her virginity in the mountains. When the two months were over and she went back to her father and he treated her as the vow that he had uttered bound him. She had remained a virgin and hence the custom in Israel for the daughters of Israel to leave home year by year and lament over the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead for four days every year. Now, I'm just interested, uh, do any of you um, uh, heard this story and uh, have an impression? First of all, did Jephthah do the right thing? And what do you think Jephthah actually did to his daughter? And there isn't necessarily a right answer here, but um, I'm, I'm looking for help on this one. What do you think? You know, there are two possibilities that I've heard, of course, that he killed her, sacrificed her. Um, and then some have suggested, well, maybe um, what, what he really did, and the reason she is here bewailing her virginity is she was not allowed to marry, to have children. Um, and I don't know, it does seem a little bit to have a, a yearly lament over the daughter of Jephthah because she can't have children. It does seem a bit extreme, so... Um, I don't know, I certainly would consider the possibility that he actually sacrificed her, which was his intention to do to this animal that came out. I don't know, but again, what makes this a little challenge, first of all, in Judges, we don't have any words of commendation from God saying, I'm very pleased with you, Jephthah, for what you've done. There's just no comment, as there is so many times in the Bible where we'd like to have now an inspired passage, God's own words, interpreting the circumstance and what Jephthah did to help us out. But we do have... The words in Hebrews 11, where Paul, after listening to all the great men and women of faith, says, should I go on? There isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon, Barak, who's here in Judges, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Through faith, they fought whole countries and won. They did what was right and received what God had promised. Now, I don't think we can say because they did what was right necessarily to translate it to this story, or else we'd have to say when David committed adultery, uh, that he did what was right, all right? But it is interesting that Jephthah is here in Hebrews 11. And I don't know, but one thing that at least appeals to me in this story is that Jephthah was trying to be faithful. And I would say he was misguided. This was a foolish oath, but he was trying to be faithful. And God, in this very, very dark time, where just as chaos, no one's listening, there's a little bit of thread of someone trying to trust in God during this time. And God took that little bit of goodness and honored that. So God recognized a glimmer of integrity even in the face of a foolish oath would be uh, one interpretation that that appeals to me. Samson, another great judge. And here's a question, which uh, I'll just throw out, see if you have any comments. But why would uh, God bless a man with the ability to kill. I mean, with such strength. What did he kill? A thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Uh, why not bless Samson as the kindest, most humble, forgiving person that the world had ever known? You're going to have a son and he'll be the kindest guy that has ever walked the earth instead of uh, with such great strength. Well, you know the song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you know, respect. And in this time... Of course, 
well, how did you respect the god? It was just by how strong they were, right? And in the minds of the people at this time, the god of the Israelites, he's just one of many gods. And so each nation had a god who ruled in his territory in their minds. So Yahweh happened to be the god of Israel. Shamash here was the god of Moab, which makes sense now when we read a verse like this in 2 Kings. We read this before, I think. But when the king of Moab realized that he was losing the battle, he took 700 swordsmen with him and tried to force his way through the enemy lines and escape to the king of Syria. But he failed. So he took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him on the city wall as a sacrifice to the god of Moab. The ultimate demonstration of um, you know, appeasement of the god. Right there, publicly. And the Israelites were terrified. Why should they be terrified? There is no God of Moab. Why were they terrified? They believed that there was a God of Moab. And look, he was just appeased. And so what did they do? They drew back from the city and they returned to their own country. Okay, so again, this is the mentality. The Israelites are very weak in this time. And the only way God can get a glimmer of respect and recognition is through power and force. And Samson, um, boy, his dying words are really incredible. Of course, you know the story how his hair was cut off and then he was captured and they uh, took his eyes out. And this is his dying prayer as he's holding onto the pillars. Then Samson prayed, Sovereign Lord, please remember me. Please, God, give me my strength just this one more time so that I can honor your name as a God who's just like Jesus in character. Or, you know, no so that with this one blow, I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my two eyes. <laughs> you know, the, the contrast between every single person in the Bible and Jesus Christ is night and day. And I think we need to recognize that contrast. We don't want to be like Samson. We want to be like Jesus. But this was, these were the dying words of Samson. And again, he's there in Hebrews 11. Man of faith. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible that was blessed with an unusual, remarkable talent by God? Solomon. How did Solomon uh, use his talents? For a time, in a spectacular way, right? But then he turned away and uh, worshipped other gods. Lucifer, probably the best example, right? So we might wonder, why would God bless people with talents like this if they're going to abuse them? And I think the key thing here is love requires freedom. For God to bless someone with something and then say, well, here it is, but you're not free to abuse it, then we're not really free. So God blesses people with these things and then uh, they certainly have the ability to abuse it. Well, we have the last story here in Judges, the Levite and his concubine. Let's just read through the story um, quickly and then just discuss uh, why do we need stories like this in the Bible. So we read about this man. He and his concubine started on their way with their servant and two donkeys with pack saddles. It was late in the day when they came near Jabus, which is Jerusalem. This was not yet captured by the Israelites. So the servant said to his master, why don't we stop and spend the night here in this Jebusite city? But his master said, we're not going to stop in a city where the people are not Israelites. They might be bad there, right? We're not going to stop there. We'll pass on by and go a little further and spend the night at Gabeah or Ramah. So that's going to be a much safer city because it's controlled by the Israelites. So they passed by Jebus, I'm not sure how you say that, and continued on their way. 
It was sunset when they came to Gabeah in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. They turned off the road to go and spend the night there. They went into a town and sat down in the city square, but no one offered to take them home for the night. While they were there, an old man came by at the end of the day's work on the farm. He was originally from the hill country of Ephraim. Notice a different area, but he was now living in Gabeah. The other people there were from the tribe of Benjamin. The old man noticed the traveler in the city square and asked him, where do you come from? Where are you going? The Levite answered, we have been in Bethlehem in Judah, but now we are on our way home deep in the hill country of Ephraim. No one will put us up for the night, even though we have fodder and straw for our donkeys, as well as bread and wine for my concubine and me and my servant. So this was not a very uh, hospitable town. It's interesting when you read in Ezekiel, the sin of Sodom, Sodom was inhospitality. Very similar. The old man said, you are welcome in my home. I'll take care of you. You don't have to spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed their donkeys. His guests washed their feet and had a meal. They were enjoying themselves <coughs> when all of a sudden some sexual perverts from the town surrounded the house and started beating on the door. Doesn't this just remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah? So many parallels. They said to the old man, bring out that man that came home with you. We want to have sex with him. But the old man went outside and said to them, no, my friends, please don't do such an evil, immoral thing. This man is my guest. Look, here is his concubine and my own virgin daughter. I mean, was this a different time or what? Um, I'll bring them out now and you can have them. Do whatever you want to with them. This is his daughter. But don't do such an awful thing to this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the Levite, I mean, this guy is really something, but he took his concubine and put her outside with them. They raped her and abused her all night long and didn't stop until morning. At dawn, the woman came and fell down at the door of the old man's house where her husband was. She was still there when daylight came. Her husband got up that morning And you wonder, do you have a good night's sleep? Did he have breakfast before he went outside? I mean, he got up that morning. And when he opened the door to go on his way, he found his concubine lying in front of the house with her hands reaching for the door. I mean, this is really dramatic. He said, get up, let's go. I mean, what a cold-hearted man. Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body across the donkey and started on his way home. And when he arrived, he went in the house and got a knife He took his concubine's body, cut it into 12 pieces, and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, we've never heard of such a thing. Nothing like this has ever happened since the Israelites left Egypt. We have to do something about this. What will it be? And probably the worst story in the Bible. Well, the worst story is when humans killed God in human form, but this is right up there with it. So their questions are, how could God allow this to happen? What does this story say about God? And why is this story even in the Bible? And this again is an example of we have to take the Bible as a whole. And some important clues come up in the book of Hosea in all places. I really like the the message translation of this. Referring to this story. You got your start in sin at Gabeah. That was this town. That ancient, unspeakable, shocking sin. This is referring to this story. And you've been at it ever since. Now listen to the story. And we get an idea here of God's feelings, God's emotions about this story. 
When Israel was only a child, I loved him. I called out my son, called him out of Egypt. But when others called him, he ran off and left me. He worshipped the popular sex gods. He played at religion with toy gods. But notice, still I stuck with him. I led Ephraim. I rescued him from human bondage. But he never acknowledged my help, never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon, that I lifted him like a baby to my cheek, that I bent down to feed him. Now he wants to go back to Egypt or go over to Assyria, anything but return to me. That's why his cities are unsafe. The murder rate skyrockets and every plan to improve things falls to pieces. My people are hell-bent on leaving me. They pray to God, bail for help. He doesn't lift a finger to help them. But how can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I turn you loose, Israel? How can I leave you to be ruined like Adma, devastated like luckless Zeboam? These are the two other cities destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, God is paralleling uh, these two situations. I can't bear to even think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. So as we're reading this story about the Levite and the concubine, if we rightly, if our insides are churning in protest, that's a good feeling to have because apparently God looks at this and his insides churn in protest. And so I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Because I am God and not a human. I am the Holy One, and I'm here in your very midst. So some answers here. How does God feel? Well, his insides churn in protest. What did God do? Still, I stuck with him, with Israel. And I think that's the remarkable thing. As low as things were in this time, God didn't destroy them. He stuck with them as remarkable as it would be. And it's interesting, which two tribes were left in Jesus' day? Remember, 10 of them vanished. Do you know which two were left? Judah and Benjamin. And this town was a Benjamite city. Who's the most uh, famous person from the tribe of Benjamin in the Bible? Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Paul, it's a Benjamite. Came out of this whole background. So I would say the Bible here, an inspired book, textbook of horrible disease and the wonderful healing remedy. Um, it's, the Bible can be put together in a way, let's just say we take one of your medical textbooks and you cut out every you know, cancer of the worst possible area. And it's picture after picture of just disease, disease, disease. That wouldn't be a book worth very much. Okay, but the Bible has the disease in the context of God in human form and God the healing remedy. So the summary here, there was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did whatever they pleased. The end of the book of Judges, that pretty much says it all. And I want to just finish with one uh, topic. It might seem kind of artificial to introduce it here, but it runs all the way through the Old Testament. Um, And that is this question, where is God's justice in this whole situation? Don't we want justice to be done to the people involved? And uh, I'm not picking on George Bush here, but I just want to use the word as we are familiar to hearing the word justice. We will bring the terrorists to justice. And the point I would just like to make is that the word justice in the Bible is not the same meaning when we, in today, think of the word justice. It's very interesting, and I think it's very important in our understanding of the death of Jesus. We say things like justice was satisfied and so on. We'll spend a lot more time talking about the atonement. Maybe it's dangerous to bring up just a a small piece of it, but let me just talk about the word justice. 
Here's a quote that I read uh, very recently uh, that I like very much. While the cross was a violent episode, we are not witnessing God's violence. Good Friday was not the outpouring of God's violence upon Christ to assuage his own wrath. That day was God's no to wrath and yes to love and forgiveness in the face of our violence and wrath. Notice who demonstrated violence at the cross. It was humanity. We're the ones who put the nails in and did all of those things. But yet somehow we have come to an understanding that the father killed his son in order that some adjustment may take place in our legal standing. Uh, I think we need to expand on this uh, quite a bit. I mean, Jesus was not a third party. He was God. God came. What did God do at the cross? Well, let's get back here to this word justice. Biblically, to bring justice does not mean to bring punishment, but to bring healing and reconciliation. Justice means to make things right. What do you do when you justify on your typewriter? You are setting things right. Those of you who speak other languages know that just and right, it's the same word in many other languages. So justice in the Bible is an expression. It is mercy in action. Let me give you just a few uh, examples. In Isaiah 1, wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done. What would that mean? See that justice is done. Here it is. Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights and defend widows. That's the biblical meaning of justice. We take care of the poor and the oppressed. In Zechariah 7, 9, this is what the Lord of armies says, administer real justice. What does real justice look like? Be compassionate and kind to each other. That's the biblical meaning of the word justice. In Jeremiah 21, this is what the Lord says, judge fairly every morning. Rescue those who have been robbed from those who oppress them. This is a justice. In Isaiah 30, the Lord is waiting to be kind to you. He rises to have compassion on you. The Lord is a God of justice. Again, what does this justice look like? He's waiting to be kind to you. He rises to have compassion on you. Look up every reference to justice and you'll come up with with again and again these kinds of verses. So in Hebrew here, uh, tzedakah, that's how you say it, but it's synonymous with acts of charity to bring healing and reconciliation to make things right. And this is where we get the word righteousness and justice, which have a single Greek word. We could just as easily say we're covered with a robe of justice as righteousness. And it means loving restoration. And today, many Jewish charities are named after this same Hebrew word. It means to be charitable. So the gist of this word is charity, giving of your time. This is a quote from a, a Jewish site. This is the meaning. Charity, giving of your time or money to help someone else without expecting something in return, it is one of the cornerstones of the Jewish religion. Now, the Greek word has exactly the same meaning. Exactly the same meaning as the word justice. So when we, when Paul is talking about justice, he's talking about justice in this sense. And of course, we have a Latin word here for justice as well. But what's happened is over time, our understanding when we hear the word justice We mean this payback justice, retributive justice, legal justice, and then an appropriate punishment is administered. And I think it's just important we realize that's not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about justice. And I'll just finish on this verse, and we'll have a lot more time to talk about it. 
But now we can make sense out of a messianic passage in Isaiah quoted here in Matthew. And what is the meaning? Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice. Translate loving restoration. He will bring healing to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory until he leads loving restoration to victory. Makes a whole lot more sense in this context that we understand what is really talked about by justice. So Jesus came in the chaos of the Old Testament to bring justice. He returned our hatred and violence for good, love, forgive your enemies. This was the pinnacle moment in universal history where everything changed. That's God's concept of justice. Let's pray. Dear Father, please help us to reflect your kind of justice to the world that brings goodness and healing and relationship. Help us to return good for evil. Amen.